rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is sure they come. I work for the union, cause she's so good to me. Welcome to WPKN's Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month. The Organic Farm Stand has a great show leading up to the holidays, and uh, we're going to talk with uh, two uh, really special guests today. In addition to our wonderful panel, uh, Chris Ferriero right here in the studio with me, and Guy Beardsley out there in the White Hills of Shelton at Guy's Eco Garden. So welcome all. Nice to be here, Richard. Great to have you, Chris. Guy and Ed, are you with us? Yeah, we're, we're in good shape up here in White Hills. Right. Oh, a little nippy this morning, but uh, we managed. <laughs> not, not as bad as yesterday, I believe. Oh, not now. Now it's uh, coming along nicely, we have, to, we have to say. Right. Are we ready to go? Yeah, we're on. We're rocking. Okay, so, good. We're rocking, absolutely. I am extremely pleased to be able to uh, incorporate my son-in-law into the program. That's Janelle's husband, who uh, will now become a, a separate entity as opposed to just Janelle's husband. It <laughs> <laughs> is uh, remarkable. Has been involved in the farm since the mid-'80s wow. and uh, has actually uh, had a, a vineyard for years, and uh, more recently has uh, decided to approach the uh, lavender program. And uh, then he has also got lots of things going on, and he likes to talk about the pollinator pathways, which I think is a, is a marvelous subject at this time of the year. But uh, what we're doing primarily is involved with the garlic right now. And uh, my root days last week were all rained out, so... I did not get my garlic planted. Uh, all the rows are sitting at the ready, and so uh, we've been uh, actually putting the garlic in, and uh, we're just, just throwing it down on the ground so that it's proper, properly spaced, which is something I did not have done last year when I had some of my uh, younger <laughs> people uh, putting garlic in, and uh, they put it in a little too close, like four inches, and that does not give the garlic an opportunity to grow for, based upon the soil nutrients. And so we're putting it in between 8 and 10 inches uh, this time uh, with, the, with the large cloves. With the smaller cloves, we'll probably put it in maybe a little closer, but not much. Uh, certainly we want to keep the garlic at least 6 inches apart so to let those roots develop. Right now, we've got the rows all set up, 
And uh, that is that fertilizers have been put in the bottom of the row. It's been mixed up uh, with the soil, and uh, we're just uh, waiting to put. Yeah, we're going to have uh, tomorrow, uh, Friday, and Saturday, which are both root days. And uh, Suzanne Dusing and myself will be putting that garlic in in good shape, and we'll have these rows are about 200 yards long, so that's a good long row, and you have to kind of. Uh, break it out into sub areas so that uh, you can see some accomplishments. <laughs> Otherwise, it looks like you'll never get through the row. It, it takes them, you know, like an hour at a time. And uh, anyway, we break it up into sub sub areas so that you can see some accomplishments as you're going along on this thing. It's very important uh, to people who are planting the garlic. To, to use a root day on a Stella Natura calendar if you can. And if you can't use a root day, you can use a leaf day. But uh, very important uh, because leaf and root are sort of the same thing, keeping in mind that beets and onions are actually leaves growing underground in a root form. But nevertheless, uh, we'll, uh, we can consider uh, it's a root day, which, which we got coming on tomorrow and Saturday. One of the things which I wanted to talk about a little bit is when you break the cloves in from the bulbs, it's important to bring them, break them out so that you have large cloves, medium cloves, and small cloves, and then maybe even some slivers, which you probably can throw away unless you want to try to use them as plain garlic because uh, those slivers will not develop any kind of a garlic plant that's worth your time and effort. So use the large cloves as much as possible. But when you break the cloves out, you have to keep them dry, and you don't want to pile a whole lot of them on top of one another. Keep them pretty close uh, to uh, maybe no more than two inches, maybe three inches in in your little baskets, because uh, they will mold if you don't get them planted in the ground right away. One of the critical factors is when you break those cloves out is to uh, make sure that you've got a space for them and that uh, you keep them very dry. Extremely important to keep them dry because they will mold pretty quickly if you keep them warm and moist. So as opposed to the garlic in the refrigerator, which you can keep, in a humidity drawer, which you do want to have it a little bit moist it's in order to keep the oils in the cloves and in the bulb because the oils are what give you all the nutrients. Uh, I wanted to, uh, anyway, that's our primary operation right now is involved with the uh, garlic, and uh, we're still going on that. Now, what I'd like to do is give, uh, give you a little bit more introduction to Ed, yeah, on this thing, and I, yeah. I wanted to give him a little introduction to you because I think that in the course of uh, the hustle bustle of getting the show started, I didn't even mention that we're speaking with Guy Beardsley out there at Guy's Eco Garden in Shelton, and his son-in-law today is going to give us a special presentation about uh, lavender and various other things that he does out there on the farm. That's Edward Kowski. And I just also want to mention that later in the program, about 12.30 or so, we have a special guest with us from West Reading. Not Reading, but even further out there in the boondocks, (laughs) West Reading. 
And that would be Bill Hill, who is... The, oh, outstanding. Yeah, Bill is going to join us from Warrup's Farm. And this is a special kind of holiday thing because Bill is a maple syrup harvester, producer. We're going to hear all about the way that works out there. Uh, he has a, a modest operation, but, uh, man, I want to get out, out there and uh, see what his farm looks like and, and try to pick up some of his maple syrup. But we're going to find out how he does it and also just a, a, a lot about his farm, his operation, which you probably know something about that uh, guy because Bill well, we've been mentioned— We've up there. We have been up there to his farm, a marvelous farm, too. Yeah, and a beautiful part of, of Connecticut, no doubt. Yeah. So that's all coming up. So back to you, Guy. Uh, you've been properly uh, vetted here. You can continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good show. Well, thank you very much on that, Richard. Uh, let, let, say, Chris, I want to welcome you back. We yeah. haven't seen you in a couple of times Yeah, thank, thanks, Guy. Yeah, it's been a month since I've been here. Right. How's your garlic coming? <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know if you remember, I put my garlic in in February. A little bit disappointed with the results, but I still have a lot of that garlic left. Um, so I'm not going to wait till February this time. Good idea. Uh, <laughs> February. Yeah, I don't see how you can get it in the ground in February. Up here, in the, the ground is frozen to the point where you, you just couldn't do it with unless you put a pickaxe in there and punch through the uh, the, the frozen soil. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm closer to the shore, so usually it's uh, warmer. So okay. Well, anyway, uh, that's good. And so, uh, actually, yeah. just one more thing, guy. Uh, so what other days aside from Tomorrow and Saturday would be good days the for the 29th is the next root day. Okay. The 29th of November, right? That's after Thanksgiving. Okay. Yeah. Right. Now, you need to know what the, the day is for December? Uh, you might as well, for me and the audience. Well, in that case, let me just make a real quick trip over here to <laughs> where my Telstelinatura calendar is here. And we'll give you a run, rundown real quick. So we have here, okay, so on December, we have a root day on the 1st, and then we have a root day on the 9th and 10th, yep, and then the next root day is the uh, 16th and 17th. You got those, yep. Chris? Yep. Okay, that, that, that's the root days. Certainly I'm hopeful that it's, uh, you'll have it all planted by the 16th or 17th of December. You know, I'm I thinking about it because it's supposed to be uh, warmer tomorrow and Saturday, so I'll probably put it in this weekend. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow and, uh, and Saturday are going to be nice and warm and, uh, you know, probably even short-sleeve weather before, if you don't have much winds, right. So anyway, there you go on that. Uh, what I'd like to do now, Richard, is to, to turn it over to Ed because he's got a lot of things. He's done considerable research on this, on all the things he's going to talk about. Let's do it. Okay, Ed, you're on. Great. Uh, thank you very much for having me um, uh, on this program. My name is Ed Woodkowski, and uh, I had a 30-year a career in corporate world. As well as being a part time farmer in 2015, I started really full time here or, um, on the farm with various things. And what I decided when I really looked around and, and became really interested in was lavender. Lavender is a remarkable herb. herb it's one of the, uh, in the form of a shrub, it's one of the earliest uh, known things that man has, has cultivated. 
It, it's a remarkable thing in what it can do for health purposes in terms of of uh, being antiviral or um, uh, antibiotic. It has re- remarkable uh, f- psychological evaluation or things it can do to you in terms of, of uh, lifting you up or it could also be a very relaxing herb in terms of its essential oils. Uh, it's a remarkable plant, so I decided uh, this would be a, this would be a really good thing to introduce as part. There's only a, really two farms in in Connecticut that are working with lavender, so that was that was one of the things that um, brought me into that. We have uh, several fields now. Uh, some uh, a field that's involved in in um, a much smaller growth of, of uh, French lavender, which is most people think of when they think of lavender, you see all those beautiful pictures and, that are in calendars and, and uh, of these huge fields in uh, southern France. And then uh, English lavender. Now, English lavender is a remarkable old lavender in that it has so, so many really remarkable old, uh, medicinal Capabilities that it really is part of, really an important part of our our world's use of lavender. Most of the time, when you when you get like a detergent or hand soap, it has the uh, the essential oils from from the French lavender, but the English lavender is a much more gentle scent that it has with it that's really based on on what its chemical composition is. That one is the one that's used. It can knock out headaches. It can calm children. It's really great to put on dog beds, to to put certain sprays on dog beds. It helps calm them down if you have a, a dog that's very nervous. So that really got us going into that. Could you uh, tell us uh, um, how, to, how to distinguish between the two visually? The big distinguishing thing uh, visually is that the, the French lavender has these really long spike heads as a flower, whereas the English lavender tends to be a smaller, lower plant. And so that's, that's visually that would be the main difference that you would see in them. Same color? Uh, essentially, yeah. There's a whole range in all of them. There's a whole range of colors from white to pink to, to light purple to dark purple to a bluish color. So there's a huge variety of, of uh, lavenders in both the English and the French. Particularly the English is, is something that we're sort of focused on here because it can take our weather better. The French lavender he really developed along the Mediterranean coast, and uh, the winters we get in this part of the country make it pretty difficult well, to have some great lavenders to grow here. Now, there's been, been a few lavenders that they've sort of uh, bred to be much more hardy here, and, and one that's kind of now taking the whole country by storm, so to speak, is one called Phenomenal. That is a French lavender that has a, um, a much more capability to survive the winter weathers than most of the other French lavenders. There. So we have, a, we have a nice field of that, and if, this year we've made some really nice... Uh, essential oil because that was a major part of that whole process is, uh, you know, you can have, lavender has so many things. Lavender is fantastic, is part of a jam or or part of scones. It's used in in cooking, it's used in cooking in in meats. But one of the main things that most people know uh, lavender is for its essential oil. 
And so uh, as time went on, or as the first couple of years after that, we, we decided to, uh, to get a, uh, our own uh, Olympic still oh, and, and actually create our own essential oil, which we do every year now. How do you get the oil from the fresh lavender plant? Well, we use this, this Olympic still, when I just say that, this, this was a still that was developed in, in uh, the Middle East, and it's currently really being uh, mass-produced, or I wouldn't say mass-produced, but produced in, in Portugal. It's all copper, which is a critical element because uh, lavender has a particular uh, chemical in there, and a phenol in there, there that it's really critical that interacts with copper to remove it. Mm-hmm. So... Portugal has a great copper tradition, copper-making tradition. So most of the stills in the world are made in in uh, Portugal. Oh, so what happens is you have a you have a a, a a large basin of water that you boil to you know low pressure steam, and it rises through a column where you have all of your plant material. It's collected in a in, in what's called an onion dome collector, or, and then it goes down through the tubes, very much like any other still, where you have cooling water to cool the tubes, and then at the end, uh, you get uh, two products, one called, called uh, the essential oil, of course, and then the other called hydrosol. And the hydrosol is a, is a, um, is a product that can also be used, particularly on young people, but on all people, so it's a milder form that is uh, uh, the essential oil has become permanently suspended in water. So those are the two elements you come. You have to separate the two, and you end up with these with these uh, wonderful products. Next. Problem is for for every uh, hundred pounds pounds of of bud you get, you can get one pound of oil. Ed, how many uh, how many uh, plants do you have to have to get? Uh... Yeah, I'd say to get that hundred that hundred pounds of plant is something that we don't have in our, in our entire farm. Yeah, you'd, um, you'd need so a lot of plants for a hundred pounds of buds. Yes, <laughs> so that is so. It's that's why uh, that's why when you go buy an essential oil someplace, you see the prices of it. It's really really quite reasonable because uh, you're talking. I mean, we have about a half an acre. We have about half an acre of um, lavender growing here, and this year we produced, I'd say, maybe the uh, somewhere under um, probably about a, between a quarter and half a pound of oil. So you know, it's it's definitely something that's not a high volume. You're not going to get you know, if you have one or two lavender plants in your yard, you're not going to get a lot from it in terms of essential oil. What are some of the other things that, that you do with the lavender fields that you have there? You, I, I remember seeing, as I enter the, you know, come up the driveway, right. past the shed, off to the left, there was a, a large field of lavender. That's is, correct. That's our, yes, and that's our English lavender. Well, the other things we do with it is that... Uh, that one of our one of our big things is it's really just a beautiful and lovely thing to have in your home. So uh, a lot of our lavender goes to fresh cut uh, bouquets that we sell of lavender, bunches of it, uh, and posies of it. Uh, and then um, so that's probably one of our key areas. We also use it. We, we uh, take the uh, 
we take the dry buds and we um, and we add them to to some of our jams that we produce on the farm. Um, my daughter actually comes for the summer often, and she's our, our jam expert. And she makes a low-sugar jam with uh, lavender in there. Blueberry jam with lavender in it is really spectacular. From our bake, we also bake it into to scones. Uh, lavender, lemon lavender scones are really remarkable <laughs> flavor, so do, people love those. Do you need uh, to dry the lavender and grind it up into some kind of uh, you know, powder? How does that work? Yes, uh, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, no, we don't, we don't grind it, but we do dry it. That, and then the buds, are, which are very tiny, a lavender bud is very tiny. Um, I'm trying to think what it, what it could be. It's kind of like the size of a caraway seed, really. The, uh, and, and that's what you, you then mix right into your, to your process. Another thing that, that we get is a lavender extract we make here, too. And that is we take a complete lavender stalk, a stem with leaves as well as the lavender flowers on it, and we immerse them into, uh, into really vodka uh, hmm. and, and create a lavender extract. And wow. then a very small amount, like a you know, half a teaspoon, depending on the size of the recipe, of course, or if you're going to use a small amount of that also in your baking to, get, to, to impart this lavender flavor into your foods. Can you make tea? You can make a straight lavender tea. Yeah. The, um, it's really kind of, I, in my own personal feeling, it's, it's good to take those same buds and mix them with, with other teas, like a white tea or a green tea, in a mixture of whatever works for you. I don't have a really specific recipe that I can tell you. We've played around with a few things, trying to, to get some, some flavors that we like better than others. And it's really nice in a white tea, particularly. I would think that would be something that people who just have a little bit of lavender growing in their gardens, backyard gardens, might want to fool around with. And the lavender extract, too, is something that, that, that a lot of people like to do to, to, to get that, to maintain that flavor or to get that scent into their, into their foods as well. So that's really nice in, in all kind of cakes and cookies and things like that. that uh, that's really a nice flavor to have. As, um, around. So, around. Ed, I have a question. Um, so the lavender extract, is that easy to produce on your own? Yes, very easy. Does, very it, involve, easy. does it involve heating? No, no heating at all. All you do is you take the, the, the fresh stems and some buds. You know, you try to get them when they're before they're completely opened, but you get them and you put the stems and the flowers into a vodka and let it be in there for about two weeks. And then you have this really wonderful uh, lavender extract. So basically like enough vodka to cover the plants? Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, is anything anything else you could use aside from vodka for that process? <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, you know, in case people have issues with having alcohol around, as an example. That is really the best way to, to get it that is, is an alcohol all sort of base. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And I don't really know of another way uh, to get it. There, I believe there are some other methods is to, to, to get an extract from it, like a, there's a steam way to make an extract, but I don't really have enough information that I could give, give you anything. Sure, I, I just wanted to, in general. 
there is a steam way to, to make an extract from it, which kind of always gets into the essential oil level. So that you have to be a little more careful with uh, to get the to get that extract. Ed, do you think you could uh, talk a little bit about the uh, how you actually prepare the soil and uh, plant the garlic? I, I plant the lavender and uh, and take care of it uh, before you actually uh, go through all the process of uh, making uh, hydrosol and uh, essential oils. Yes. Well, yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, now, the key thing is most of the soil in Connecticut tends to be more on the acidic side. So before you put in lavender, I definitely recommend, as, as Guy would tell everyone, is to get a soil sample. What tends to happen is that you need to end up putting in some amount of, of lime into your soil to, to get it more toward a neutral, slightly base side of that scale in order to for your plants. So that's an important element. The lavender, like so many of the herbs, is kind of one of these plants that that it, it's better for it to have to struggle than it is for it to have a lot of fertilizer. So you want to put in, a, you want to make sure you have some fertility in your soil, but this is not something you want to heavily fertilize ever. So that's that's another element. And the other thing is that it also, you, know, you heard me saying earlier, it's really a plant that really originated in the Mediterranean. So it likes, it definitely likes a type of looser soil that we actually put sand and gravel into the holes where we're putting our plants in there to give it, to get it this looser area for its plants to have more exposure to air and, and more drainage is really kind of critical for that. And finally, we put them, we tend to put them in raised beds. As again, that helps prevent the plant from becoming waterlogged, something that is a plant that does not like wet feet. Yeah. It likes to have a well-drained environment for it to be. So we tend to put that into, into um, to a, a, a raised bed type situation. Ed, you, go, you work with plugs, though, don't you, for the, to put uh, in the soil? Yes, we definitely work with plugs, and we've worked with small plants. We, we don't, it's extremely difficult to grow lavender from a seed, though you can buy seeds. But most lavender growers would say that they would recommend you don't buy seeds uh, for your plants because lavender tends to, very few places in this country have just a single type of lavender. So you get a lot of crossbreeding unless it's been really controlled, the, the, the breeding of, of the seeds you end up getting this uh, this mixed plant, and it's a kind of a weaker plant. So so most plants, most lavender is usually done by cloning or by cuttings, things, and ends up making, you end up making plugs, and that's what you put into there. But you can also have smaller plants that you grow as well. So, Ed, I have a question. That is, what, what would you recommend? Because you said sometimes it has trouble surviving our winters. What would you recommend for wintering over those plants? Okay, well, yes, that's that's the very thing. We're we're still working with that. <laughs> we're still working with that ourselves. There are a lot of people uh, are working with this in the northern parts of our country. It's it's kind of interesting. Thing is, I don't have this like great answer because lavender has really only been grown for about the last twenty years in the United States. It's the earliest. The earliest time it came to the United States was the 1920s, and that all, all was over up in Seattle and Oregon. 
and it really hasn't been really tried any place else in the country until about the last 15 years. So there's really not a huge body of, of information on how to do it. And we're kind of working on that now. I, I belong to, our farm belongs to the United States Lavender Growers Association. And we're kind of all working together to try to figure out how to, how to do this. One of the things that most uh, in, the, in the Northeast have found that happens is particularly if you have multiple plants, is to get frost blankets, which is kind of like a, um, is a fabric that you put over top of the plants. And so that gives them some additional protection from, from the cold. In Michigan this year, they're trying an experiment, and I think we're going we're gonna to try to replicate here, is uh, if you all are aware, you know, when they do construction of projects, they have that black barrier that has the post on it. That uh, part, of, part of the problem that, that happens with lavender is that it can get really wind-burned in the wintertime because there's a shrub usually sitting out in this open field. Build. So a lot of the, the experiment this year is going to be to try to put in some windbreaks uh, with this landscape, with this landscape-saving fabric, and see if we can break up the wind and see how that, what that does to our, to our plants. Well, Ed, I want to thank you for this fantastic appetizer, so to speak, for lavender and real deep information there. And we're going to bring in our next guest, but Ed, you, you must come back and, and talk more about the pollinator pathway and how lavender may play a role in that. And uh, also just a little bit more about some of the medicinal properties and advantages of, of lavender. And I did a little research on that myself. I was very impressed with the range of things that it could be used to mitigate. So, Ed Witkowski, thank you so much. And uh, Guy Beardsley, stand by. Bill, uh, welcome. Yes, well, it's great, great to hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, we got you loud and clear. So this is okay. Well, it's it's uh, great yeah. to uh, be invited to uh, your program. I really it, appreciate it. Just to mention again, this is Bill Hill. He's from Warrup's Farm up in West Reading, Connecticut. I mentioned to you, Bill. I grew up in Westport, and Reading was this slightly out of reach goal for my biking <laughs> activities. But I did make it up to Devil's Den quite a lot on my bike, and you know I think Reading is is kind of on Route 107 up there. Is that Right in, in that neck of the that woods? That goes through the middle of town, yes. Okay, yeah, so I, I did see that. So routes 57, 58, they kind of get up, up in that western area, and then from there it's, uh, it's more than a stone's throw to Reading. But it's a beautiful part of the uh, state. Why don't you start by just telling us about your farm, a little bit about the history of it. I know you have a long relationship with Guy Beardsley. Uh, but tell us about your farm and your operation, and then we can start to focus in on this great holiday topic of uh, maple sugaring. Yes, yeah, so uh, a little background on Warp's farm. It's, it's basically a small farm that's surrounded by a lot of permanently protected wildland, and the uh, permanent protection was instituted by my parents, Sam and Betty Hill, back in the early 90s. They permanently protected 300 acres, and the, the farm, the total part of the farm is around... 20 acres within that area, and there's a lot of open space in Reading as well, which contributes to the uh, ecosystem of the area. I've been sugaring since I was a kid. We had a lot of maple trees on the farm and started doing it on a very small scale. It's developed into about 350 taps last 35 years or so. Started out with about 20 or 30 taps, just little little uh, cans on the trees as a kid. 
kid, so my, my brother and I did it together. So it's a, it's a labor of love, no question. Absolutely. Speaking of, uh, you know, taking 100 pounds of lavender and getting it down to uh, a one pound of essential oil, I, I think there's a similar kind of proportion with the sap and, and the maple syrup. But tell us a little bit more about generally your farm. Are you certified organic or take, you take the farmer's pledge? Well, we've, we've been uh, growing organically for since the inception. We really started growing vegetables and pumpkins back around 1980. And uh, I was certified organic for a long time, and I served on the certification committee with, with Guy for many years. But I dropped this uh, organic certification just because of the uh, excess paperwork, and I don't really need to have it. The, the people that come here, basically, you know, they're, they're longtime customers uh, and the new people seem to be okay with the way we we're running things so yeah they know they know your growing practices and and they you do uh, basically organic farming so they they don't need right. to see the organic label staring at them yeah. when they come and so what kind of range of things are you a CSA for example and do you have we grew uh, vegetables and we're still growing vegetables for years but we don't grow on the uh, the large scale that we used to we had a CSA for a few years but now uh, we're just growing more um, for subsistence and then some excess, but we also have a um, large plot that we grow pumpkins on for a picture on pumpkins. So that's, and so the agritourism part is, you know, is the most important thing for uh, financial consideration on the farm. You have to, you know, it's, it's great to be able to grow a lot of different things, but you have to be able to grow something that actually makes you some money. <laughs> so... That's that's what we do, and the syrup is. I do it because I really enjoy doing it, and there there is some money in it, but it's it's a a lot of work. Tell us about that process. We all have visions of those cans tacked up to uh, maple trees, you know, from our childhood and stuff like that. And we see them on or maple syrup cans. You know, there's a picture of a tree with with a can on it. But tell us about the, the whole operation, soup to nuts. So how do how do you how do you get maple syrup from a tree? Well, the way you, like what you see on the can, that's the romantic version of maple <laughs> syrup. I still do it kind of the old-fashioned way, but uh, for years, up until about 10 years ago, we just had the buckets on the trees and went around and collected it with the tractor. And that works, but it's, it is a lot of work, and we, we try to get volunteers to help, and that helps too. But my son helped set up a tubing system in our woods, so it's about 10 acres of maple trees that have tubes all pitched by gravity into the tanks and it makes the collection a lot easier. Then we bring that up to our sugar house where we have a pretty large evaporator. And it, the thing about syrup, is it takes 40 gallons of the sap to make one gallon of syrup. So it's, you need a lot of boiling. So we just you boil, boil it, boil it, boil it, and keep an eye on the temperature and the density. And when it reaches about 221 degrees Fahrenheit, you can pour it off and then filter it, and then you can it later. Can we go over those proportions again? You said 40 gallons of 40, sap? 40 gallons. 40 gallons. Of sap make one gallon of syrup, <laughs> so we still just boil it. Almost all the syrup on the big operations now, they use reverse osmosis membranes to take out about half of the water. It makes it more energy efficient, but I've always just used scrap wood for my evaporator. A lot of the big uh, operations use oil, which I really don't want to do, so... Uh, but you know, reverse osmosis makes it takes less time to boil a lot of sap, basically. The season usually runs 
from middle of February to the end of March around here, but uh, it's it's highly variable and it's getting more variable because of the uh, global warming. Um, you, you almost in Connecticut, you can almost you could tap in January and you can you can make syrup in January if it's if it's a mild January. So anytime the trees have, when the leaves are down and you get a freezing night and a, a slightly mild day like up to 45, the sap will flow. And you drill a hole in the tree, you put a, if you're using buckets, you put a metal spout that's about about a little bit less than half an inch. The more modern ones are less diameter to help the tree heal faster. And then you hang a bucket on it, it's a metal spout, or if you're using tubing, it's a plastic spout. and that tubing gets hooked into a whole network of tubes that all goes down to a larger pipe that goes flows down into your tanks. And also the big operations have vacuum systems where the vacuum helps the sap move through the, the tubing. That's another uh, you know, technological thing that's really improved the production in the last 10 years or so. How many gallons of sap and then Ergo, the uh, syrup, do you get from those 300 trees? So in a good year, I think one year uh, recently, we, we collected about 3,500 gallons of sap and we made around uh, 65 or 70 gallons of syrup. That's for the, compared to a big operation, it's really peanuts, but if, if you ever try to tap a tree in your yard and you put out like four taps, you see how much you got all the sap you got to deal with if you're trying to do it on your stove. It's, <laughs> you know, it's not going to... It takes a lot of time, and it creates a lot of steam in your house. So you got to do it outside. I see. So, Bill, I have a question. So basically, in essence, you're hammering this tube into the tree. So how far does it go in? Oh, you, when you drill a hole in the tree, you go in about an inch and a half, maybe not not quite two inches. So you don't want to go too deep, and it's the sapwood that has the the sap flowing in it. Right, which is the and, outer the outer part of the tree. Right. Okay. And so at the end of the season, at the end of March, you pull the taps and the tree will heal itself if it's in uh, good shape. And you only put, the rule is, no more than two taps per tree, even if it's a large tree. And you don't tap a tree if it's under 10 inches diameter of breast height. So the smaller trees you leave alone. The rule used to be you could put four taps per tree, but that's because the trees are getting more and more stressed, it's better just to stay with two with, with the large trees. Can you come back to that same tree next year, or do you have to uh, rotate? Yeah, you can uh, come back to it, but you have to move the drill about at least a foot away from the, the hole from last year. Mm-hmm. And you can keep tapping the trees um, pretty much every year as long as they're uh, in reasonably good health. And how, how high off the ground are you looking to put those holes? Uh, you can... It's just whatever is convenient for you. You can really you can tap right at the ground, or you can tap up at the top of the tree. They've done experiments. You can even tap the roots. Everything flows. Wow. The yeah. whole the whole tree just wants to flow at at that time of the year when the sap is rising, because the, the sap is is bringing all the sugar that was stored in the roots from the past the summer before. It's bringing it up to the twigs so the buds can swell and then grow them. The leaves for this year. And that's what, you know, it's a, it's a whole cycle. So that really uh, answers a question I was formulating, which is that the reason you're doing it 
in February going into March is because that's when this that first bud formation thing starts to happen where the tree is, is sort of coming out of dormancy and starts starting to... Uh, right. It's basically the trees are breaking dormancy, and you want to get the sap before the buds swell. Once the buds start to swell, the sap changes chemistry, and it, it makes what's called buddy sap, buddy syrup, which is usually kind of bitter. And uh, I guess it, they've done experiments. You can make syrup any time of the any month of the year, but it's you make the most in the late winter, early spring, and it's the best tasting. I think sometimes people have tried doing it in the fall, and it does work, but it, there's not as many um, ideal days where it gets below freezing at night and above freezing in the daytime. Well, we, we just had one of those days, I think, but <laughs> how, how many of those days do you need to, in other words, uh, how, how many freezing days do you need followed by warming days to uh, get that... Uh, well, the, basically, in an average season, you only... It's called a run. You, average season, you only get 10 good runs if you're lucky. So that means the rest of the time, there's there's not as much or none, or no sap flowing. But that's one thing with these vacuum systems. They can make the sap flow when the conditions are not perfect, which you got to wonder if it... Hmm. affects the trees they sit you know they've done experiments where they say it doesn't but um basically the tree kind of is it responds like a barometer it responds to barometric pressure of the atmosphere and if you have a night that went down at 20 degrees and then you have high pressure coming in you have a northwest wind the sap and it's a sunny day 45 degrees you get a really good sap flow and then if you have a day where it's uh, hasn't it's only gone down to like 30, and then the wind is coming out of the east and it's low pressure. It and it get, but it still gets above freezing. It, it may not flow that much. And there's all kinds of old sayings about wind from the west sap flows best, wind from the east sap flows least. Uh, so there's all these you know old farmer wisdom is is often quite accurate. But it's a, it's a fascinating phenomenon. It's just like any any natural phenomenon. It's there's a the more you look into it, the more complicated and more interesting it gets. How do you know what, what a sugar maple tree is versus another type of maple tree, or, or do they all provide the sap? Well, that any you can tap any maple tree, and it will usually uh, provide some sugar. But the um, sugar maples generally have the sweetest sap, and they have opposite leaves, opposite twigs. The twigs are kind of golden brown compared to red maple. They're red and reddish color. The bark is kind of platy, but it's, it's be good to look at some pictures because mm-hmm. it's, uh, I'm not giving you a very good description. But there's, there's supposedly there's one kind of maple that grows more in the Midwest called a box elder maple. They're supposed to be even sweeter than sugar maples, but they're they're they don't get to be they're not a real large tree, but they get sweeter towards the end of the season. Sugar maples are sweetest right at the beginning of the season, and they tend to get less sweet unless you get a big cold snap. Then it brings some of the sugar back. Are there any other kinds of trees that could produce this sort of sap into syrup? For example, black birch trees or white birch trees. Black birch trees, uh, I have this memory from my childhood, and I I still do this. When I see a black birch tree, I break off a tiny twig and I peel down to the green, I don't know what you call it, the the layer just before the the, uh, actual white part of the... Yeah, uh, it's the uh, inner cambium, probably. Uh Uh-huh. 
And and it's wonderful. It's uh, it tastes like wintergreen or something like that. It's right. It's got the wintergreen taste, and it, you can tap that uh, birch trees. And I did an experiment one time. I tapped the maple trees and I tapped the birch trees. The same black birch. Uh huh. But you can use a silver birch as well around here. And I tapped them at the same time. And at the end, when the maple trees stopped flowing, the next day the, the birch trees start, started to flow. Before that, the birch trees had not flowed. So they, they all have their own season. And I think there's, there are some other species of trees you can get sap from to process, but it's, I think it's, it's probably, I, I, just, I haven't really tried it myself, so I don't know all the details. Did you get like a, a very delectable product out of the black birch trees, or how, how did that come out? Well, the the, um, the sap that comes out of birch trees, it takes about a hundred gallons of the sap from a birch tree to make a gallon of syrup, <laughs> birch syrup. Wow. And there are people that do it up in Alaska and in Canada, and it's it, that season only lasts about two weeks. It was mm. maple season often lasts about six weeks, and it's uh, it's not really something you want to put on your pancakes. It's more like a condiment, like a Worcestershire sauce. So it's really good, though. It's good with meat. Hmm. Um, but the main thing, like the, the Russians, anybody in the north, northern Europe and, and the, like northern Russia in the, towards the western side, they use it as a spring tonic. They just drink the sap, and it's, it is really good. It's very refreshing. Fantastic. Well, we're coming down the home stretch here. I want to just maybe get a little bit more details about once you get the sap back to your sugaring house, what happens there? Once we gather the sap, and the, the sap is is very uh, clear when it first comes out of the tree. It's, um, it's uh, pretty much looks like water, a little foamy, almost like seawater. And you have to boil it as soon as you can because it, it can start fermenting because it's an ideal medium for growing bacteria and yeast. So you try to boil it off quickly. That's why I got a, a pretty good size evaporator. So we run the, the sap into a big gathering tank. It's like three or 400 gallons. And then it gets piped into the, the, the evaporator. is basically a really big pan that's folded up. It's like a long, skinny pan that's folded up on itself. And it has a big, it's called an arch. It has, it's a firebox. So you feed the firebox at one end. There's a big stack at the other end. And the modern evaporators actually have... They're called flues. It, it's like a, it's like a steam engine with fire tubes. It expands the surface area of the pan greatly, so you can really boil it. Like my evaporator, when it's really cranking, can make about two gallons of syrup in an hour. So if you try to do it on your stove, you get appreciate. It takes all day to make like a, a quart on your stove. So wow. home stove. What a great so story. It, it, so. Last question, and we do we are down to literally two minutes. What do we know about the the history of of maple sugaring? Like, is this go? Is this a, a, a North American phenomenon, or like, does it is this you know a, a pan global thing, or like when? It's, it's a North American phenomenon. The uh, the native tribes figured out how to do it a long time before white people came here, because uh, sometimes at the towards the end of the winter they would have they would run out of most of their supplies so they would they they basically camped in the sugar groves and they they stayed there for the whole month and they they would the way one way that the, the native tribes cooked was they'd heat up stones and then put them into their bark containers to make their stews or whatever so they did the same thing with the, to make 
to boil down the sap. They put the sap into a hollowed out log or a bark containers and they put hot stones in them. So that's how they would boil it down. A huge amount of work, but that's that's what they had to do. And they did not make syrup. They just they made it to sugar stage, which you had to boil a little bit longer because they didn't have a way of storing syrup. So all the when the colonists came, they just imitated what the Indians, the native tribes, were doing, and they uh, they tried to make as as refined as sugar as possible to imitate the cane sugar that was coming from the West Indies. I'm gonna I'm gonna break in here, Bill, and just say that we have to end the show. I want to thank you so much, Bill. Hill. We have to have you come back. It's a great story. It makes my mouth water. Guy Beardsley and Ed Wachowski, thanks so much for being with us. This has been the Organic Farm. Thank you, Farm. Richard. Have a great holiday, and we'll talk to you all in a couple of weeks. Indeed, we will. Okay. Vincent K. Indeed. Take care, all. Thanks a lot, guys. Hundred percent natural, baby. Hundred percent natural. This world we